Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and today's guest is Clay Wilcox. Clay is not only an accomplished diver, but he's a multi-sport athlete. He has mastered both air and land travel, being a commercial aviation pilot, and a former National Mountain Bike Champ. He's also quite the chef. Get this, as a teenager, he spent a summer working in Martha Stewart's kitchen. Then, like future Frogman's president and podcast host Richard Hyman, Clay, at just the age of 19, caught a break and began working for the famed explorer Captain Jacques Cousteau. It so happened that Clay was midway through commercial diving school in New York when he got a chance to board Cousteau's ship Calypso as a fill-in cook. That eventually led to realizing his dream. He made it up, or as he says, down, to being a Cousteau diver and participating in 18 television shows. Clay is pretty much the coolest guy out there. So, without further ado, let's get into it. So it's great to have Clay Wilcox with us today. Clay wrote to me in 2012. I can't believe it was eight years ago. But uh, Clay had learned of me uh, via a Google alert, uh, one of my speaking engagements. And he said there were very few Americans that worked full-time for Cousteau on Calypso, and he wanted to meet. And Clay was right. Uh, Very few Americans really did work uh, for Captain Cousteau on Calypso and his other vessels. Um, but we did meet, and uh, we, we quickly became friends. Um, I worked for uh, Cousteau from 1973 to 1979. Clay, what were the years that you worked? Yeah, so I started uh, with Cousteau in 84 through 91. Okay. And so, yeah. therefore, unfortunately, Clay and I never got to work together on, uh, on uh, Calypso, or uh, uh, another vessel of Cousteau's. But uh, again, we connected. And uh, hey, Clay, it's funny, as an aside, during my college years, people would seemingly be BSing, usually at a party or something, about working aboard Calypso. And uh, I just automatically asked them, hey, what bunk did you sleep in? Because to me, that was always a big deal. Maybe it was a big deal to you. Uh, And of course, they could not answer. So Hey Clay, you're the real deal, and I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited for you to uh, be with us today and, and share some of your great stories. We 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 visited last week and did a little prep, and uh, it was really uh, exciting to hear some of the uh, parallels as well as uh, different stories. So, uh, and we're also super lucky to get with Clay because he's such an active guy, doing uh, mountain biking, tennis. Uh, he's a, a, a pilot. Uh, But unfortunately, he recently sustained an injury. So he's a little bit laid up. Say, Clay, what what the heck happened? Well, you know, just like everybody making pesto in their kitchen, I sustained a lacerated tendon uh, in my foot. Um, EHL tendon, which is the most important one controlling your big toe, and the only one actually to your big toe. So, um, you know, how I sustain that is kind of a crazy situation, but uh, <clears throat> I just like to say that there was no alcohol involved. Uh, I was uh, stone cold sober, and uh, due to uh, misuse of a Cuisinart food processor blade, uh, which in- ended up falling and hitting my foot uh, and perfectly severing the tendon to my large toe or great toe as, as, as I've learned all about, uh, I had to have surgery and it's a lengthy convalescence 
to the tune of 10 to 12 weeks in a boot, and which means no tennis, no flying, no biking. Uh, I'm catching up on my reading though, uh, which is good. And, uh, and, and that's about it. So uh, I, I am on the mend and I did have a good surgeon and I hope the prognosis is okay. But uh, that's the story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry uh, that that happened to you, a freak accident for sure. And it is in a way uh, an interesting uh, connection to uh, one of your great talents, which is cooking. And you're going to tell us more about that. But may, let's go back to uh, uh, sort of the beginning. Uh, I understand you were raised in Cooperstown, New York. Yeah, which is the epicenter of diving, I've been told. Um, actually, yeah, it, it's it's kind of funny in that a kid from Cooperstown, New York, which is central New York State, home of the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is what it's most uh, most known for. There uh, happened. I, I grew up there. My parents moved from New York when I was young, and um, we had this lake that's about nine miles long, a, a mile wide, and, and very deep, 50 meters deep or so. And um, naturally, I was I was drawn to it as a kid, so I started snorkeling and uh, spearfishing in the lake um, and just loved, loved being underwater. And so ultimately that led to me getting my scuba certification in high school. Um, and I ended up going to boarding school for four years in, in Putney, Vermont. And um, so I got my scuba certification then and ended up yeah, diving in Lake Spofford, uh, New Hampshire, and got the scuba certification. And coming out of high school, um, it was a you know college preparatory school where all my friends, of course, were heading off to college. I had other thoughts, and that I, I loved diving so much, and I also got into welding. Um, so started fabricating wood stoves in high school, and we started a, a wood stove company selling kind of one-off wood stoves. And I thought, how can I combine my love for diving and uh, this newly acquired skill for welding? So I decided I want to become an underwater welder. Um, and I thought that that would be somewhat adventuresome. And uh, that led me to City Island, the Bronx, another hotspot for diving. Um, and I went to the Professional Diving School of New York, which was a commercial diving school in the Bronx, uh, City Island, which is this little island part of the Bronx. And, um, you know, attended the commercial air diver uh, training, which is a surface supplied uh, diving training that uh, ultimately gave me a license to work in the North Sea uh, and HSE part two, part one and part two diving. And, uh, and I had introductory to underwater welding. Um, so kind of a long, uh, uh, long story how I got there, but um, I, I figured this diving thing is really fun. And I also had, you know, of course, during this time, the uh, space shuttle expeditions were going off, and I, you know, I, I, I mused about becoming an astronaut, but after struggling mightily through high school physics, 
I realized that, you know, if high school physics was giving me that much trouble, I may not make uh, astronaut school. Um, so becoming an aquanaut, I thought would probably be the next best closest adventure. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. You know, the, we, we, we often hear the comparison of uh, space and underwater astronauts and aquanauts. Um, Clay, now you mentioned surface applied. Uh, for folks that might not know what you mean by that, can you explain? Sure. Well, you know, there's there's really two kinds of, of diving out there is scuba, um, which has myriad uh, different ways of going about it. But that's, of course, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus where you carry all the gas on your back and you carry your autonomous. You carry the equipment with you. Um, when you're doing commercial diving, typically, uh, and especially deeper diving that requires saturation and, uh, you know, operating in and out of diving bells, um, you uh, are using surface supplied. So that would mean you're tied to an umbilical, um, umbilical cord that uh, is really about five different uh, types of tubing and hosing and strength. And it's, it's really uh, a bundled cable that attaches you to the surface where you get your gas, your communications. Uh, and if you're doing deeper diving, you're uh, using a hot water uh, suit. So you're actually using a kind of a loose fitting wetsuit and hot water is pumped down from the surface into that suit uh, because even with dry suit diving, which is typically used in colder water, uh, by the time the gas gets down to you and you're breathing and you're working down there, uh, you convect out a lot of heat from your body through uh, your breathing. And no matter how well insulated, say, a dry suit is, you'll never recover the heat that you're losing every time you take a breath um, in sustained cold, colder water diving. Um, so um, surface applied is, and obviously with surface applied, you have no limit to the amount of gas that's available. So whether it's air or a, a, a little bit more of an exotic cocktail of mixed gases, which is gonna be used when you go deeper, um, that's really the only way to go. Um, so you are you're sustained by the surface, you can talk to people, but you do have a bailout bottle, uh, a smaller tank of compressed gas that you have on your back uh, in the unlikely event that uh, you should be separated from the surface uh, due to some kind of accident. Um, you know, that's where surface supply diving is just, uh, you know, the, the common uh, application for, for any kind of real commercial operation. Yeah, that's interesting because, of course, uh, Captain Cousteau's uh, co-invention of the Aqualung uh, did... Uh, alleviate the need for that umbilical, and you could be autonomous uh, more freely moving about. But uh, for certain applications, such as you described, uh, the uh, surface-applied uh, commercial uh, diving uh, is uh, a different setup. So, hey, sure. one thing that Cousteau, 
you know, recognize that back in the day, all diving was surface supplied. So, you know, you we all harken back to those visions of, of seeing the divers with the large hard hat and the lead boots. Um, and that, that air, uh, which was just air, it was pumped down to them through, uh, originally through manual pumps. So there, there would be two guys on the surface operating a pump, which would drive air down to the diver. Um, and that was a Mark V uh, operation. Uh, that was what the equipment originally was called. And those guys walk around like Lurch or Frankenstein on the bottom. And we still recognize, wow, maybe there's a better way here. So we're going to talk a lot more about diving and your adventures with uh, Cousteau, but uh, I think this would be a, a good time to uh, talk about how you got into cooking. Uh, am I correct that it started when you were at the prep school and, and then it led to a very interesting summer job you had? Right. Um, you know, it's funny, but uh, of course, all diving operations and all marine operations revolve around stomachs. And um, I was always into food growing up and I ended up getting into uh, a, a cooking while in high school. And I was fortunate enough to fall under the wing of um, this woman, Toshiko Phipps, who taught gourmet cooking at this high school. So I embraced it and, and participated for four years, I ended up spending a lot of time with her, learning about not only Asian style cooking, but all kinds of cooking. So it just so happens that I went to high school with Martha Stewart's daughter, Alexis. And um, Basically, I uh, was fortunate enough to get a job working for Martha Stewart after I graduated from high school, living uh, in uh, Westport, Connecticut, which was something quite new for me, and working in her kitchen. And this is when Martha, Martha Stewart and uh, Martha Stewart's catering operation and books were now being recognized and her first book entertaining became a bestseller and so she had a commercial kitchen in in westport at her house and she and her husband andy at the time were kind enough to put me up and so i lived at her house for for most of the summer and worked in the kitchen uh cooking preparing for various martha stewart catered parties which were hot, hot items in the day. And um, I uh, was the only guy in a kitchen filled with these, filled with women. Um, and so that was quite an experience, but I learned a great deal. And, and Martha Stewart, uh, you know, taught me so much about perfectionism and uh, trying to sustain a very high bar of excellence, which, you know, for for good or bad, she has a reputation for being very demanding. Um, but she was always very gracious with me, um, and she and Andy. And, um, you know, I ended up living at her place and doing all these super high-end catered events and, and learning so much about food and cooking. And I was 
had no idea that that would ever help me. And, you know, I, I had no desire to become a professional chef, um, but I, I really, of course, loved everything about food. And um, so uh, that helped me, ironically, uh, in, in getting a job with Cousteau. So, I was, Clay, I was just going to say or ask you now, it helped you get a job with Cousteau. And after working for Martha Stewart, is that when you entered the diving school and then, then, then the opportunity with Cousteau arose? How did that all come about? Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I had finished the summer with Martha Stewart and I had enrolled in uh, this diving school, professional diving school of New York in, in City Island. And so I, that fall, I started uh, at commercial diving school and it was a six month program total uh, initially. And I had about, I was about three months into the program and um, I got a curious call one day from the Cousteau Society asking me whether or not I had any interest in becoming uh, the fill-in cook on the Calypso um, while it was in dry dock in, in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, the reason I got this was that all, all roads lead to Cooperstown, it seems, but uh, the chief writer at the time, or one of the chief writers for the Cousteau Society, Paula DePerna, happened to have uh, bought a house in Cooperstown to get out of New York City on the weekends and she befriended my parents and the Calypso was undergoing a huge refit in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, because uh, it was a, a maintenance intensive vessel. It was an older vessel, of course, and it was made of wood. So they had a skeleton crew on the Calypso while it was in a shipyard in Norfolk and getting all this work done. And they needed somebody to fill in uh, as uh, the cook or as uh, the parlance is a uh, cuistot. The cuistot is the, the chef on board the, on, the, on a ship. So uh, I went and, and uh, interviewed uh, with Karen Brazeau, who was in charge of their New York City office. And... I kind of thought I was going to be offered a, a diving position, really. I thought this was, well, you know, we're going to talk about cooking, but this American guy's a, a commercial diver or, or thereabout are or, or going to be. And I was crestfallen to find out it was just, it was a cook position for, for five guys on the Calypso in a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia. So my, my first reaction was, uh, that doesn't really sound like that much fun. And I said, I'd think about it, but I really wanted to become a professional diver and to go to work in the oil patch. And it just so happened, I, I went back to the commercial diving school that day, and it just so happened that the, uh, the owner of the school and of the group that owned the school International Underwater Contractors, IUC, was a gentleman's name, uh, Andre Gallarne. And Andre Gallarne was a, born in France, and he had worked with Cousteau in the early, early days. 
he got wind that I had spoken with the Cousteau Society and um, he immediately said, you're crazy if you don't take this opportunity, take this opportunity, do it now. I'll give you a leave of absence from commercial diving school and you can come and finish your commercial diving licensing later on. So that really did help. Uh, turned the corner for me. And I, I, the next day I called and I said, all right, let's do this. Um, and that started my illustrious career in the galley of the Calypso uh, for Cousteau Society for, for the, about the next year and a half. Um, so uh, that was really my first introduction. And it, it wasn't you know, it wasn't the rom most romantic or the most adventuresome because we were in a shipyard, high and dry, and I was cooking on this ship for these five French guys who, <laughs> uh, you know, and that was my first experience right there. So on the Calypso, but on land. Yeah, well, I think the message there that we try to... Uh, communicate and reinforce to uh, particularly a lot of the young people that work with us at Future Frogmen is, you know, if an opportunity is presented to you, uh, try to take it. Uh, just say yes, because you may never be presented that opportunity again, and it may lead to additional opportunities like it like it did for you. Uh, and, and actually like it did for me when Cousteau asked me to drive a truck for him. And that, that led to eventually becoming a diver as well. Um, now, and uh, I can relate to what you're saying. Uh, we were in dry dock in uh, Jacksonville at one point, and uh, we had more than five on the ship at that time. It was, uh, it was, it was not a, a long stay in the dry dock. But uh, uh, anyway, um, the uh, working as a chef, and I think you might have done a little bit of work as a maitre d' as well. Um, when, when I was aboard... Uh, that we, we were calling the maitre d' like the steward. And uh, I had to fill in on that a few times, which I did not care for. Um, but maybe tell us a little bit more what it was like to be, be a cook on the, chef, on, on the ship. Well, you know, being on a ship um, for any period of time, uh, you, you quickly find out that one of the preoccupations, of course, is, is what's for lunch, what's for dinner because a ship operates 24-7 and uh, there's not much to do besides doing your watch or whatever your function is on, on the ship and then looking forward to lunch and dinner. Uh, being on a French vessel, the preoccupation with what's for lunch and what's for dinner is a factor of 10 compared to probably any other type of vessel. Uh, as you know, the French are very discerning about uh, kind of what <laughs> what they're eating, you know, its provenance and and so on. And so I, you know, may have greatly embellished my resume uh, about cooking to secure the job. Um, and as soon as I got the job, I got a. Uh, a couple of French Bibles of cooking um, and proceeded to cram, you know, everything I, I could about 
French regional cooking. And, um, you know, the one thing I, I will say, you get instant feedback when you're cooking uh, on a ship um, because there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide, and there's no Yelp reviews that you're looking for. Um, and if they don't like you, they're, they're gonna find another book. Um, so I, I cooked um, for the smaller crew. And then when we went on expedition, Maitre uh, d'hôtel, you know, the maitre d' or the steward on board the ship to assist the chef. And we had uh, a chef that came back and had worked, you know, for years for Cousteau, this gentleman, Patrick, and he was an unbelievable chef. Like he was, shall we say, eccentric? Is that what we call people like that? Um, he was very eccentric and he was no stranger to tipping, you know, a few glasses of red wine early on in the day to get the, the ball rolling. Uh, and he would scream and curse and, uh, you know, flail knives around and complain mightily. And the crew loved them. Um, so <laughs> I learned a great deal from Patrick. Uh, but the crew was also when I was just backing up a little, when I was the primary chef or cuistot on board the ship, the crew was very forthcoming about like their favorite recipes, their favorite dishes. And um, for some reason they took pity on me maybe, but they uh, you know, would tell me, and, and my, many of these guys, especially the folks from Northern France, from Brittany and Normandy, you know, they had these family recipes and they, wanted to make sure that you knew how to prepare, prepare them. Um, so I, I pretty much dug in um, and tried to learn everything I could. And I loved the food too. I just loved the food. And on the Calypso, we had no budget whatsoever for cooking. Like it didn't matter. Uh, you know, whatever I bought was great. And you know, it, it's a challenge when you're on a ship uh, and especially something like the Calypso is just planning. And, you know, if you ever, God forbid, ran out of red wine, uh, butter, garlic, onions, bread, you were going to be uh, thrown overboard or at least metaphorically thrown overboard. Um, so you wanted to make sure you had pretty robust supplies of those essential provisions. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was very difficult and, and uh, you know, all told, after a year and a half of, you know, cooking and being the steward, uh, I went on several, uh, you know, we did some PR tours when uh, Captain Cousteau turned 75. He had a big birthday party in um, Washington, D.C., and uh, all these celebs came, and I was the steward at that point. But being the steward, and, and you know, if you, you feel my pain, we had no dishwasher. There were typically a crew of 24 to 27 on board the ship. And Mrs. Cousteau, La Bergère, was always on board when we were underway. And uh, she would like to entertain quite a bit too. So whenever we were you know, at port, she would have the local dignitaries to help grease the skids for 
for future endeavors. Um, but you know, I uh, you know, the, the French have a uh, an expression. It's called uh, plonger dans la vaisselle. You know, and it's diving in the dishes. So I was a diver, all right, but it was originally it was washing the dishes, and I washed so many dishes uh, during that stretch, and it was the first time we actually went on a real expedition was on the Calypso was to Haiti. And I was the maitre d' uh, under Patrick. And you know, an expedition was three months typically to make a a one-hour television documentary. So that was my first real expedition uh, overseas, where where I worked as a maitre d'. And you know, it's it's very difficult, hot. And it's seven days a week, you're constantly going. So that was, a, that was one of the harder jobs I, I had to do just constantly. That, that's a good description because uh, working aboard Calypso, no matter what you're doing, it's, uh, it's hard work. There's not a lot of glamor in it. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, no, it's, it was super hot at the time and the galley on the calypso as you remember was very small um and uh the ship uh was 147 feet i believe and it was narrow and and as i mentioned it was wood because it was a former minesweeper a world war ii minesweeper built in seattle washington and we used to like to say that the Calypso rolled like a wine bottle, um, which was true. So that galley was constantly, you know, moving. And uh, if everything wasn't secured fast, it would end up on the floor, um, you know, on your feet. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I didn't realize, but we actually may have crossed paths in 1975 on Calypso because uh, I was at that uh, Cousteau's 75th birthday party and uh, we sailed, I was on the ship and we just sailed from DC down to Mount Vernon. So uh, I wish we had met then, but uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and I, I, I wanted you to speak about how small the, the galley is and what I, what I called the wardroom where we took our meals. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty cool that you, uh, you could be the chef for, you know, a relatively small group of people instead of the usual full complement, because that might have been, you know, uh, pretty difficult walking right in cold. Um, but can you tell the folks, like, there's there are two sittings. Can you explain how, how that works? Right. So, you know, the, the salon, salon, which, uh, you know, which was the um sitting room for where the service was uh given could only sit typically 12 uh you know 12 13 maybe 14 if you really squeezed in and so we would have two services typically 11 and 12 for lunch and then uh, six and seven typically for dinner mrs Cousteau, la berger would attend one of those with her sidekick, which was uh, a 
small dog uh, named Yuki. Um, and she loved that dog and the dog was constantly by her side and the dog had free range uh, in, you know, the, in the galley, in the salon. Um, in fact, as the steward, I had to feed Yuki uh, every day. And, um, you know, that Yuki had a fairly uh, rarefied diet of uh, grilled strip steak uh, with boiled vegetables and steamed rice. And I had to make that, I had to prepare Yuki's meal every day and I had to cut up the steak uh, into little pieces so Yuki wouldn't choke and feed Yuki. And of course, Yuki would get tired of such a, such a plain diet and then would just poach off the table on people's laps. And uh, you had to love Yuki. Um, but Yuki was just, uh, and Yuki means snowflake in Japanese. Um, and Mrs. Cousteau had been raised in Japan for part of her life. And that probably helped uh, her in, in, you know, she, she loved everything uh, about Asian cooking or particularly Japanese cooking. And Martha Stewart had given me a great set of sushi knives when I was working for her. And I was into sushi and had studied uh, under this Japanese uh, lady, Toshiko how to make sushi. So I would make Mrs. Cousteau uh, various sushi and I, I would carry rice and vinegar and wasabi and, and so on with me whenever I went on expedition. And so I uh, would make these dishes for Madame Cousteau and I think that endeared her to me to some degree uh, because uh, you know even Patrick had no clue as to how to prepare traditional Japanese sashimi. And, and we were fortunate, of course, being on the ship to have access to great fish. We would be trolling wherever we went, uh, particularly since some of the crewmen were from Northern France. And whenever we were underway, there'd be two lines. Uh, even if we were, we were going full steam, you know, we would sometimes catch uh, more game fish, wahoo and tuna. Um, but frequently we would have fresh fish. And if we didn't, we would trade out with local fishermen for a bottle or two of wine or cigarettes. You can, you could trade a lot of stuff for a pack of Marlboros in, uh, you know, in the Philippines, <laughs> uh, it goes a long way. Yeah, that, that's interesting, uh, some of the parallels and some of the differences as well, because uh, we only trolled once. That's when we were limping down the eastern coast of the U.S. on one engine, so we were only going about five and a half, six knots, and uh, that's the one time we did troll, And uh, uh, but we, we certainly did an awful lot of trading of cigarettes and wine for fish and lobsters. Um, and it's funny listening to you talk about Yuki. Um, because we had Ulysses uh, years prior, and uh, I think it was the same menu for Ulysses. <laughs> it sounds like the same menu I would see. And uh, like you said, uh, Ulysses would climb up on your lap while you're eating your meal, and uh, Ulysses was probably uh, way overdue for a bath, so you didn't necessarily 
enjoy that, but uh, you, you better love uh, Yuki or and Ulysses, uh, otherwise uh, Madame might not be uh, too happy with you. Um, uh, Madame Cousteau, uh, uh, La Bergère, uh, was uh, quite the strong presence on the ship, wouldn't you say? She was amazing. Um, you know, she was uh, typically behind the scenes. She didn't love being in front of the camera. Um, and she was, I think, the first uh, female scuba diver. Um, but she was a very strong presence. Uh, she loved the Calypso. She loved the crew. You know, her nickname was La Bergère, which is the shepherdess. Um, and so, although she wasn't in front of the camera and doing that much diving, um, and, and of course she didn't dive uh, towards the latter years, but she uh, had this uh, way about her. I mean, I, I think she was probably 95 pounds soaking wet, um, but she could go toe to toe with anybody and um, she was just, uh, you know, just Cousteau's, you know, I, I think she was Cousteau's confidant in, in so many ways. And whereas Captain Cousteau, uh, Jacques Cousteau, Jique, we called him, which is, his full name is Jacques-Yves Cousteau. So by her, his initials, he was Jique or Le Commandant or Le Pacha. Um, he would come on board the ship for typically a week or two at a time uh, on a shoot, and then he would fly off. He was always traveling. Um, but two weeks was typically about the maximum we would have on, on the ship. But Mrs. Cousteau, always there. And, um, you know, she, she spent a great day all the time in the galley. So you really, she had to like you. Um, and uh, as I said, she, you know, we got along fine. Um, you know, when I first started, I didn't speak a word of French. Um, I had studied Spanish and I became pretty good conversant in Espanol. And uh, I loved learning languages. Um, and my mother speaks several different languages. Um, so I quickly realized that if I wanted a future and if I ever wanted to be considered uh, to be a diver, would have to learn French. Um, so I would sit down in the galley um, and study French uh, and whenever I had time off and I would read French comic books, uh, Asterix and Lucky Luke, Lucky Luke. Um, and the crew was, again, very helpful because they realized, you know, it's a pain in the ass talking to this guy in English. Uh, it'd be way better if he spoke French. And I, I was into it. And of course, I never much loved hearing people talk trash about me behind my back in a language I didn't understand. So I quickly realized that I better learn this language and I better learn slang. Um, so uh, I embarked on, on learning French 
And, um, you know, it, it, it took a while and I would confuse Spanish and French, uh, quite a bit, but after about a year and a half, it suddenly clicked and I became, you know, very conversant and Mrs. Cousteau would help me. I mean, Mrs. Cousteau would help me with my verb conjugations. Um, it, I had some great teachers there. Um, but, you know, I knew if, if I wanted to dive, I had to speak French. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. I'm sure it, I don't know if it came any easier to you, but you were uh, more diligent than, than I was. I'm sure, uh, it, it didn't come easy to me, but it was something that you, you had to, uh, learn uh, for dive planning, dive safety, and as you alluded to, also kind of sanity. Uh, people talking behind your back, you, you, you didn't want that to be going on. Uh, you're at sea for an extended period, and you, you kind of have to conform to the, the culture there. So, Clay, um, really interesting, uh, really fun to, to hear these aspects Let's talk now about how you became a diver on Calypso and on uh, Alcyon. Well, honestly, I, you know, after about a year and a half in the galley, um, I was losing my steam. Um, I, I wanted, I had during some a vacation, I had gone back and finished my commercial diving certificate and realized I wanted to become a professional diver uh, for sure after going through with it. And here I was, I was in the galley of the Calypso washing dishes. And we went down to Haiti as my first real expedition on the Calypso. And um, I knew it would be a schlog uh, because of uh, the fact that I didn't love washing dishes much. And, um, and I felt like I could go toe to toe with any of the divers that were there. They, they had hired a new dive team for Haiti. So some of these guys were relatively inexperienced, although the rec prerequisite for becoming a diver was that you either had to be a military diver or commercial diver. You know, you had to have a lot of dive experience. And there were some cases where maybe some some guys slipped in there, but they, they uh, really wanted you know, at least for the French guys that uh, they wanted to, to have, there was a lot of ex-military guys. Um, so I would, I was of course into free diving, you know, growing up snorkeling and, and spear fishing. And I would free dive down to the team when they were practicing in Haiti, you know, and I was getting 60, 80, a hundred feet. And, um, you know, that was kind of funny for the, the uh, steward on the ship to be able to do that. Um, and of course I was doing it on purpose. Uh, I was kind of struggling, of course, uh, you know, with the language, but towards the end of the expedition, after about three months, Captain Cousteau was down on the Calypso with Jean-Michel. And uh, finally I decided that I had really had enough and I, I, I wanted to become a diver. And so, I wrote this long speech in English and worked with all these guys to translate it into French as best I could. And then I memorized it in French. And one day 
Jean-Michel and Captain Cousteau were in the gal in the salon, and I approached them and I said, "Hey, look, you know, I can wash dishes anywhere, but I'm a professional diver, and that's what I want to do." And I realized that this is a French operation, and you know, uh, either I need to be a diver or I need an airline ticket out of here uh, from Port-au-Prince because I can't be washing dishes all my life here. So I went down to my cabin at that point, both Jean-Michel and Captain Gusteau were poker faced. Um, and I thought, okay, well, it's been nice knowing everybody. I went down and actually packed my bags and uh, we were pulling into uh, Port-au-Prince at the time in Haiti. And I thought for sure, all right, I'm out of here. Um, and I was fine with that. I just reconciled in, in my mind that uh, it's not going to work out. I'm this American guy. And, it, it, you know, a couple hours later, I'm in the galley working, washing dishes. And Captain Cousteau comes into the galley by himself. And he has a picture. And it's of his new experimental windship, Alcyon. Uh, Alcyon was his new baby. And it, it was a... Um, 103 foot vessel made of aluminum started as a monocoque and went back to kind of a catamaran, uh, a twin hold vessel, had a unique shape. And it was designed to accommodate two of these experimental wind uh, turbines, uh, wind turbines. Uh, they were called turbo sails, um, which Cousteau was using on that platform to demonstrate the technology and ultimately to try to uh, sell the technology to cargo uh, or to shipping companies to put on cargo vessels because it was totally automatic system that could reduce fuel consumption. And on a large cargo vessel, if you can reduce fuel consumption by 10%, that's a huge win. So this was his new baby. And it was being uh, fabricated in France um, by a company called Pechenet. And um, he just put a picture of Alcyon on the bulletin board in the salon. And he just pointed at me and pointed at the ship and gave me a thumbs up. And I gave him a thumbs up. And that was that. He offered me a position on board the Alcyon as a cook and a diver. Uh, and I would share the cooking duties with the chief diver, Bertrand Sion. And our first expedition was uh, to take the ship uh, from Martinique, where it was going to, to go, to uh, Cape Horn. And so I'm the first guy who's ever tried to uh, work his way down the ladder and become a diver. And, and uh, I, I was able to do that. And that started my career as a diver on uh, for the Cousteau Society on the Alcyon going down to Cape Horn. Excellent. And then uh, what were your diving duties? Well, you know, when you're first starting out, you are the grunt. So you're a cable hauler. Um, and we, you know, we shot in 16 millimeter film. Um, and so really believe the resolution for film was much better. And it was compared to video at the time. 
And so, as you know, they had various underwater cameras that would hold a roll of 400 feet of 16 millimeter film. And there was no way to change lenses underwater. So you had various cameras with various lenses. Uh, with 16 millimeter film, you needed artificial light uh, for the most part, unless you were filming something big like whales. Uh, you always needed to fill in some light. And as you know, underwater, you lose colors in the spectrum of Roy G. Biv. So you, you, know, you, you lose your reds and oranges and yellows, depending on your, on your depth. But Cousteau was actually the first person to figure out that the uh, things that you see underwater, which are, are pale blue, when you give them artificial light, they come alive and they have these beautiful uh, full spectrum of colors, orange, yellows, reds, that you would never be able to discern with ambient light. And especially when you're filming, uh, you need to have extra light. So we had these uh, light systems uh, at the time were designed by Maglite and it's 16 light bulbs on a cluster and the light man would use that to fill in for the cameraman and we have one or two of those and um they were supplied by uh surface power so there would be a cable running from that light system up to uh, uh a boat above the dive site and uh, typically we'd use uh, either the tender on board the Calypso, the Chalon, or the uh, or a Zodiac, and there'd be a five kW, five kilowatt generator or two uh, up on the surface, and there would be a driver and and somebody tending the cable. But you can't just run cable down to a, a, a the light man because the cable is going to jerk all over the place. So you had to have a tender on the cable working to create slack on either end which sounds pretty simple, um, but anything underwater takes three times as long and is three times as complicated. Uh, so with currents and bad visibility, you could find yourself working super hard as the cable tender uh, to try to accommodate the light person who is trying to not waver in terms of not flinch or Know, create any distortions on uh, when for the cameraman um, and you know inevitably the cameraman would be waiting for a shot and try to get that shot and then the light guy would screw it up and you have to try to do it all over again but we had no video so we had no way of confirming if we ever got the shot and we would be working um, and you know maybe there was a hair or a piece of lint on the gate of the camera. Uh, there, the lighting could be not particularly good. Um, and we wouldn't know it until we'd ship, we'd film and we'd ship the film out to New York or Paris to have it developed, to have the editors look and say, yeah, you got the shot or no, you have to go back there and get the shot. Now, of course, you have instant gratification with video. Um, but that technology just wasn't uh, up to par, and particularly for Cousteau, who was, uh, you know, a perfectionist. 
um, he wanted the very best and, um, and he was good at knowing what he wanted. Yeah. Having, having, uh, done the same role, uh, it's, uh, it's cool to hear you talk about it, uh, exhilarating, but a very challenging role for sure. Um, and, and you're certainly using very different equipment than you were using in commercial diving. Can you explain that? Well, sure. You know, we, um, when I started, we had this new system, uh, which, uh, you know, back in the early days of Cousteau, you may have had the old doubles, uh, steel doubles, um, which um, were very heavy and uh, higher profile. So not yes. quite as elegant. There were some uh, fiberglass shrouds, I believe, that you had uh, in, in the day. But Cousteau, you know, he was always tinkering with things. And, and, and I was described Captain Cousteau is a genius you could talk to. Um, he could he could see through solutions very quickly, and you you would have a conversation, and you would think, all right, we have to, for instance, run cable through this to get through this cave to shoot this thing, and and he wouldn't know much about it, and you know we would have three of us all figuring out the best solution. And then he would just suggest another solution and you would realize, wow, <laughs> that's be better than we could have come up with. But he um, recognized that there's got to be a better way with these tank systems. So he, along with um, some aerospace designers came up with a four tank system, which were much smaller um, and they were capable of holding a much higher pressure of uh, gas, of air. And um, they were designed to hold up to almost 5,000 PSI. And these were smaller tanks. Again, there were four of them. There were 30 cubic feet you could put in each one. Um, and we, had, they were about three and a half inches in diameter, and um, I think about uh, you know 30 inches, 29 inches long. And then they were held, they were piped together, and then there was a shroud over them. But the whole profile was only about four or five inches, four and a half inches, including the shroud. So <clears throat> they conform to your back very well. Three of them were your primaries, so. We had no pressure gauges um, on in any of our gear, and we used a single-stage regulator, the Spiola Technique, uh, you know, single-stage double-hosed regulator, um, <clears throat> which you know isn't the best technology for easy breathing, easy gas delivery, but certainly the most elegant. And the reason being is that with a two double hose regulator. One is for intake of gas and one is for exhaust of gas. And the, ga the gas exhausts, your air bubbles exhaust behind you from the regulator. So that if you wanted to film a diver, um, you could get a close up of their face and not have a big fat regulator in the way and bubbles. 
Um, and we also used those Aquarama masks. I'm sure that's what you used back in the day as well, which is basically like a big greenhouse, a huge high volume mask. Um, whereas a lot of dive masks are low volume so that if you flood them, it's easier to purge the water out. But Stowe was all about, let's, let's have the best visual here. And we want to be able to see the diver's face. And that worked, worked a lot better. Um, but the, the uh, single stage regulator just wasn't quite as easy breathing, especially if your head was upside down, if you were diving vertically, uh, you had to really, you know, pull to get the uh, air to you. And if your head was, uh, if you were straight vertical, your head was above, it would tend to want a free flow um, and much harder to buddy breathe on. Um, but you got used to it and they were simple. Um, we could take apart one of those regulators with uh, not much more than one screwdriver and um, put it right back together. And, and they were very reliable. I never had a failure. I had like one or two failures of those things, but not in extreme conditions. So they were, they were all right. Great. So Clay, I believe you were a diver on as many as 18 television shows. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a, a little bit about uh, maybe some of your favorites, uh, including locations and uh, creatures you might have uh, come across. Yeah, so we had a contract with Turner Broadcasting um, because Ted Turner and Captain Cousteau were fast friends. Uh, Cousteau um, and uh, Ted Turner collaborated on uh, various projects. And so we started this rediscovery of the world tour is the is a series that I worked on. And we had both the Alcyon and the Calypso doing shows for this that we had to, had to produce. Um, and you know, basically you had each each ship cranking out a, a show about every three months. Um, so it was the rediscovery of the world tour, meaning that we were going back to locations that Cousteau had worked um, way, way back in the day. <clears throat> and here we were coming back maybe 20, 30 years later and documenting the changes um, that were happening. And um, so I was able to work first, you know, in Cape Horn. Um, and that was, that was pretty challenging diving. Um, you know, Cape Horn, of course, is known for its weather and, um, and visibility typically wasn't great, but, um, I got to dive in so many different kinds of locations that um, it was, you know, everything was, every show you did was different uh, based on the marine environments and weather, et cetera. Some of, some of that rediscovery of the world led to you joining the flying team. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I did those 18 shows um, and Husso had another project uh, on the back burner, and he was developing uh, what was called the Paris Ocean Center, 
and it was right by the Louvre uh, in Paris. Uh, but it was the Cousteau Museum, essentially, that um, you know was dedicated to uh, taking people through the, the Cousteau journey. Uh, and part of that was an attraction, uh, a, essentially kind of a, a, a large format film that was shot to be shot in 35 millimeter film and blown up to 70 millimeter to have somewhat of a, like an IMAX or sh show scan quality. So it was an attraction uh, for the uh, Paris Ocean Center. And it was a fanciful theme of two divers going around the world underwater. And I was fortunate enough to um, be one of the divers on these expeditions. And we had what was called a flying team. Uh, and early, the early days of flying teams with Cousteau was when Philippe Cousteau, Captain Cousteau's eldest son, uh, would operate the PBY Catalina, which was a World War II era um, search and rescue amphibious aircraft uh, with uh, twin uh, engines that they configured to be able to accommodate a, a smaller crew and go to different locations that were, you know, impossible to reach uh, with a ship. So they called these operations flying teams. And that parlance went on uh, to uh, describe a small team that we would send to shoot uh, some location, maybe a terrestrial location or whatever. And so I worked on a flying team to shoot the Paris Ocean Center. And the first thing we did was to go and film humpback whales in Maui. Uh, and I worked with the cameraman, Michel Delois, who was an amazing cameraman. Oh, a good month and a half filming humpback whales in Maui. Um, and I, I, I can't tell you, my, my words are inadequate to describe what it's like to dive with a humpback whales in crystal clear water um, while they have calves and they're, they're swimming in large pods. Um, visually, it's no less than breathtaking. Um, for one, when you dive in, in Maui with these whales, when you put your head underwater, there's this constant symphony of whale, no of whale songs. And that combined with, because the sound of course carries so well underwater, um, and there's so many whales there because they give birth, they calve uh, in the winter time down in Hawaii, and then they migrate back up to Alaska. So they, they migrate from Alaska down to, uh, to Hawaii, calve, uh, raise their calves for a couple of months, and then swim back, migrate back up to Alaska where they eat. And the cows, um, and I, I, I believe the bulls, but they are not eating during this entire time down in Hawaii. But they are um, calving. 
and they seemed to be having uh, a heck of a time down there. But we were able to uh, film them at very close range, and it was simply spectacular. Every day was better than the next. Um, but we had to operate out of zodiacs, and we would try to uh, anticipate where they were swimming, and then we would jump down. We were using smaller pony tanks, smaller scuba tanks, so that we were much more maneuverable. And a lot of times we would breath hold dive down to 30 feet, 40 feet to try to shoot, and then we would start breathing. And, and probably not the safest technique, um, but you wanted to avoid a lot of bubbles. Um, we did try using rebreathers, but they were not the greatest uh, technologically advanced rebreather systems known to man, and they were very basic. They were World War II era um, rebreathers that used uh, a soda sorb to scrub the CO2, and you were very uh, much limited to depth. Um, and because we were diving in blue water, very deep water, thousands of feet, um, it would be very easy to, uh, to go too deep and to suffer oxygen toxicity. Um, we used them up in British Columbia when we filmed orcas, but the bottoms were very, you know, sometimes we were only diving in 20 feet of water, so there was not much risk. So we experimented with free diving, we experimented with rebreathers, we experimented with just using small pony bottles, but filming those humpback whales was uh, just one of the most incredible things. Um, you know, I unfortunately was injured uh, pretty badly seems to be a theme here. Um, while filming the humpback whales, we were one day filming uh, this enormous pod of whales and we didn't quite know what was going on, uh, but we determined there were actually 16 humpback whales all swimming very fast. And what was happening is that there was a cow and there were two, there was bulls chasing this cow and they have to try to position themselves to be uh, the selected one. And so these bulls are all trying to uh, uh, reposition themselves and push the other bulls away so that this cow will select them to be their mate. And these are 40, 45 foot, 40 ton animals that are swimming at 10 knots sometimes, eight to 10 knots, and they're slamming into each other. And you can actually feel the concussion when they connect. And they would leave this black stuff in, in their wake. And I couldn't figure out at first what this was. And then I realized these are sheets of skin uh, that they, when they, they impacted each other, it would just, rub off due to the great friction, um, which was just wild. But one day we were filming uh, these humpbacks and there were 16 of them and I jumped in. I was the subject diver. And Michelle was filming me and uh, I maybe zigged while the whale zagged or vice versa. And the humpback hit me with its pectoral, leading edge of its pectoral fin and hit my uh, side of my thigh 
Uh, I thought I broke my femur immediately, but I was also very concerned with its fluke, the tail, uh, because it was swimming really fast. And uh, uh, I was able to just avoid the fluke. And, you know, we were deep water at the time. Uh, and I was able to swim up and I just suffered a, a major, major contusion. Um, and I was on crutches for a couple of weeks. I couldn't be in the water, but uh, I got over it. And, um, you know, I lived to tell the tale. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Uh, and just so uh, listeners are clear, the uh, humpback uh, hitting you was was purely an accident on, on the whale's part. It was not intentional, correct? No, it was, it was you can actually see in the footage and for various reasons, they never used the footage. Uh, but, you know, we weren't supposed to be that close to whales. And, um, you know, obviously the whale came to us, but the whale was trying to avoid me. And they are amazingly uh, sensitive to where their body position, despite their enormous size, they're very sensitive to where their body position is. Um, but, uh, you know, after that, I, I gained a healthy respect and, and, uh, you know, kept my eyes peeled better. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was my fault and it was, you know, the whale was, was definitely trying to avoid me. But when you get 40 tons going in one direction, um, it's hard to be that agile, apparently. Sure. Uh, so you were on crutches. Did, did that mean you had to leave the expedition or did you stay? No, I stuck around. And then finally, after a couple of weeks, I could get back in the water. Um, yeah. I, I had this enormous bruise on the side of my leg. Um, and, uh, you know, the weird thing was, is that I developed this red line and I thought I was getting some kind of infection. Um, and I realized that the steam of the wetsuit had been imprinted in the side of my leg, stamped in the side of my leg by uh, that impact. And it was a ferocious impact. I would say I'd been in a motorcycle accident uh, once before, prior, and I thought that that was a really bad impact. And this impact was actually worse, uh, believe it or not, underwater. You wouldn't think that something hitting you underwater would be uh, that dramatic. And it, it, it actually was. So Clay, as we, uh, near the end of our conversation, we, I, I'm sure we could go for hours, if not days. Uh, it's really been very entertaining and informative. Um, I, I did want to kind of tie up the end though, because it seems like being part of the flying team, interested you in aviation and that led to a career in aviation. Well, you know, it, it's, it's funny. The, the parallels of diving and flying are, are pretty strong. Um, and I worked on the French merchant Marine system with Cousteau it was three months on a month and a half off. So I would get these vacations and I decided to get my pilot's license, my private pilot's license. And 
that turned into commercial multi-engine instrument. And Cousteau was going to revive the flying team program and was looking at a new design out of Germany from Dornier. They were uh, coming up with the Dornier Sea Star, which was a composite aircraft uh, that was a push-pull turboprop, uh, so twin engine. And Cousteau was going to be one of the original like, launch customers of this aircraft. But Dornier ran into troubles with certification. And I had been with Cousteau for about seven and a half years at that time. And I was uh, really, of course, uh, enthralled with aviation. And uh, so the deal fell through with Dornier. And then I was presented with an opportunity to work for a company that operated an aircraft, a, a King Air, a twin engine turboprop, where I was going to be able to fly this aircraft. And so I decided at that time that if I want to pursue my aviation career, that um, this was about as good as opportunity as any. And I, although I loved my time with Cousteau and um, was thrilled to be able to check off many of the boxes of diving with large animals, with great white sharks, with whales, um, and travel around the world, um, felt that was the time uh, to do it. And so I, after my last expedition filming pilot whales in the Canary Islands, um, uh, ironically, filming pilot whales, I decided to leave to uh, to become a pilot, and um, and that started my career in aviation. Um, and I have since been in aviation since you know, since 1991 um, in various capacities, flying and selling airplanes, and and uh, I still fly today, although I can't fly now with my foot um for a period of time but you know flying and diving as i said are, are are similar in so many ways and one of you know one of the many ways of course you know you're in a different medium um and it is adventuresome to some degree you don't want it to be too adventuresome but you learn every on every flight as you learn on every dive something new and even the most boring dive i remember with Cousteau, like we were going to film kelp again or we're going to film sand crab and i would be thinking i would much rather be filming great white sharks or whatever that's when we would discover something new and i found in aviation that even the most routine boring flight from a to b you learn something. If you don't prepare for it, you may it may pass you by. But you, if you don't pay attention, it may also come back to haunt you. And that's, you know, I, I don't get a chance to dive much now. Um, but flying is is kind of my my way of uh, uh, replacing diving. I would say. Yeah. As you say those words, it's making me think uh, about the beginning of our conversation where you became an aquanaut and uh, you did not become an astronaut, but you got pretty close by being a pilot. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's uh, 
pretty interesting. Uh, now, uh, I guess in closing, Clay, one of Cousteau's quotes, my favorite quote of his is, protect what you love. And uh, I'm sure you feel the same way about uh, that sentiment. Uh, can I ask you in closing what your thoughts about the ocean are and ocean conservation? Well, you know, the one thing that we are missing these days is somebody like Cousteau. Um, Cousteau brought the ocean into people's living room. And I grew up watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau and that series. Um, so uh, today, albeit the technology and the, uh, the way that, you know, the, the, the quality of uh, shots that they can get um, are amazing. Um, you know, I think better than a lot of things that we did. But what is lacking is someone to take the helm uh, from Captain Cousteau in terms of advocating for our oceans. And Jean-Michel Cousteau, his son, has done an excellent job. He is still fighting to this day. And Jean-Michel's son, Fabien Cousteau, is, and his daughter, Céline Cousteau, are doing great work. Um, but I would love to see some of, uh, uh, and, and other Cousteau's uh, grandchildren now are, are doing great work. So the legacy is there. Um, I just hope that uh, people's, uh, particularly in these days where we have more time to consider what we're doing to the environment. And I'm, I'm greatly concerned with this PPE ending up in the oceans. But I just hope that we have someone who can advocate uh, and, and bring these issues uh, that we are inevitably going to be faced with um, regarding our oceans and their health to the fore. And uh, I hope we can have the next Cousteau uh, come out of this because if our oceans are not healthy, uh, we are not going to be healthy. And our oceans all, all, you know, even if you live in the middle of the United States, um, you rely on the oceans uh, for precipitation, et cetera, uh, climate. And I just hope that we can have the next Cousteau uh, be, you know, uh, right front and center. However, we, we embrace that um, through uh, whatever medium it is. But um, I think people's hearts are, are good in terms of wanting to protect the ocean. And I just hope that our, our government, um, our government officials can um, incorporate strong environmental roles uh, into uh, the future because our kids, and I have three children, our kids need the oceans. So um, let's just hope the future frogmen of the world are, are going to be as prolific as Captain Cousteau was in his endeavors. Yeah, well said. Uh, 
and it's incredible how prolific he was with uh, such limited resources, the, the uh, accomplishments he made. Yeah, we, we are at Future Frogmen trying to do, uh, do our part through education, action, activism, and uh, exploring. We believe exploring is very important to get, uh, get out in the field and whether get out of the laboratory, get out of wherever and into the field and uh, see it, touch it, experience it is, uh, is very important so you can protect what you love. So uh, it's an interesting story, Clay, and uh, I thank you so much for sharing it with us. You said yes and became the, uh, the chef. Uh, and look what that led to, you know, it's incredible. And that's, a, that's consistent with messages that we, we share and, uh, your attention to detail in this conversation and your ability to so clearly articulate your memories has really, uh, been enjoyable. So thank you for spending time with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you'd like to see more from us, you can go onto our website at futurefrogmen.org or you can visit us on social media at Future Frogmen pretty much everywhere. We post episodes every week, so make sure to keep tuning in and we're going to keep pumping out content for you. Thank you for listening.